Last week, we looked at a passage that involved uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and um, they show up elsewhere in the Bible here in John chapter 11, uh, and we also get to now know we are introduced to their brother, Lazarus. So if you have this passage, uh, we're going to just look at it in in the chunks that are there instead of reading all 57 verses from chapter 11 which would be long. So let's just look at this, um, what we have here in front of us, and then we'll take a look at it together, okay? This is John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So, okay, jumping down to verse 14. In between what happens, Jesus is telling his disciples about this, and he says, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And his disciples think that he's talking literally like, na- like he's just taking a nap or something. And so they call him on that. Like, I don't understand. So then verse 14. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So in the verses in between, they actually go, Jesus and his disciples, and he gets intercepted by Martha, who says, you know, Jesus, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. And so they have this conversation. She goes back and gets her sister Mary, who now comes up, and here we are in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. And then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. And as the story unfolds, the Pharisees hear about this. And then in verse 53 it says, So from that day on they plotted to take his life. This is God's word. Let's um, pray together before we look at this and um, consider these things tonight. Okay, So please uh, just pray with me real quick. Father, as we look at this passage, which is so... Uh, great and speak so deeply to um, sort of the deepest recesses of our hearts. We um, really invite you now to come and to teach us and to help us make sense of this. And so we pray uh, to that end, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What we're doing this semester in RUF is that we're asking the question, how is Jesus 
relevant to our lives. And so we look at each passage each week of the way that Jesus interacts with real people to try to answer that. And this passage is probably no more relevant because it addresses something that everybody in this room feels and knows firsthand, which is pain and suffering. And uh, I've actually had a knot in my stomach all day leading up to this uh, to talk about this subject because I know many of your stories. You've sat down and we've had coffee. I know my story well enough to know that this room really is full of uh, heartache and suffering and pain. And I, I know the extent and the heaviness with uh, the things that we deal with in the sense of uh, our loneliness and depression and um, sexual abuse and broken families and eating disorders. And this, this, this room is really just... Uh, full of, of people who know firsthand uh, what, what it feels like to experience pain. And so the question is, okay, what do we do with it? Does Jesus at all have anything to say? Is Jesus at all relevant to this burden that we really all bear? And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage and, and look at this issue from this passage, basically from these three different angles. And I included it in your handout to hopefully make it a little bit more uh, accessible. Uh, let's look at Jesus' purpose to our pain his posture towards our pain, and then his plunging into it, okay? So his purpose, his posture, and his plunging. Hopefully that'll make sense. Let's, okay, first thing, his, his uh, purpose for our pain. This is probably the most articulated objection that I hear and that you probably hear that you may have against Christianity, which is this. Why does God allow suffering? If he is good and powerful and he would want to eradicate suffering and he has the power to do it, why would he allow it? And and since the claim of the New Testament is that Jesus himself is God, is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, the same question could be posed to Jesus. Is Jesus, why do you allow pain and suffering? What is his purpose behind it? Well, this passage does not give us an exhaustive answer to that question, but it does kind of point us in the right direction. And so under this heading, I kind of want to look at this from two different you know, uh, points. Basically, what his purpose is not, and then to look at what his purpose is. So, okay, what his purpose is not and what his purpose is. First, what it's not. In verse 1 through 3, we kind of get the setup of the story, right? Mary and Martha and Lazarus are, 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 are all siblings, and Lazarus is deathly sick, and, and Martha and Mary run to tell Jesus um, about it. So here it is in verse 3. Look at it with me. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the, the one you love is sick. Jesus loved Lazarus. I mean, verse 5 reiterates this. Jesus loved him. And yet, bad things happened to him. He was fatally sick. And as the story unfolds, he, he dies in the end. And here's what you have to see. Those whom Jesus loves still experience pain and suffering. Or or in other words, we know that the reason behind our pain and suffering, it can't be because he doesn't love us. I mean, you have to see that. Verse 3 is this bizarro paradox where it says, the one you love is sick. I'm not on Twitter. I've never tweeted. I have no intention of tweeting, but one of my friends who does told me that um, Steve Johnson, who is an NFL 
football player um, for the Buffalo Bills, um, dropped a game-winning touchdown pass this past season. You know, it went through his hands, it cost his team the game. And here's what he tweeted. I praise you, God, 24-7, and this is how you repay me. Thanks. But my guess is, uh, for as kind of over-the-top and outlandish as that is, my guess is, is that he probably articulated the language of your heart a lot of the time. When, when, you, when you think to yourself, God, I thought you loved me, so how could you let this breakup happen? Or, um, you know, your family back home is falling apart, and you're like, God, I really thought that you were for me, and it really seems like you're, you're punishing me for something. Why, how could you let this happen? Or, you know, you find yourself in, in the last semester, your last semester here at App, and, and you're still single, and you have this sneaking suspicion that the reason you're still single is maybe God's just holding out on you. He's punishing you for something. And that's sort of, you know, the language that, that goes on in our heart. But you have to see, verse 3, verse 5, this whole passage, here is someone that Jesus loved, and yet bad things have happened to him. And so while we don't always know what the reason is, we know what the reason is not. It is not because he doesn't love us. He doesn't love his, you know, it's not because he doesn't love his people. One of my friends uh, put it this way. He said, we have to judge our circumstances in light of God's love and not the other way around. Meaning, we have to view and evaluate our circumstances in light of God's love rather than view and evaluate and judge God's love based on our circumstances. There's a huge difference there. So we know from this passage what the reason is not. It is not because he doesn't love us. So what is the reason? What is his purpose for pain, for allowing pain in our lives. Well, um, look at what Jesus does next. It's actually really shocking. In verse 6, he gets word that his friend, this guy that he loves, um, is sick. And it says that he doesn't rush to see his friend. He actually just kind of chills out for two more days and waits. Why? Well, he tells you in verse 14 and 15, he says, it is because with a purpose so that you would believe so that we would believe. Look in verse 14 and 15. It says, So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, so that we may learn to trust him, so that we would lean into him. That is his purpose sometimes for pain. I mean, think about it like this. If God just granted everything that you wanted in the timing that you wanted, he would essentially be just a genie in a bottle, just granting whatever your request is, and you would have just about as much of a relationship with him as you would uh, the button on a Coke machine. Where it's like, I don't, I don't love this button. I'm not giving my life to this button. I just simply push it whenever I want something. And Jesus says, you know, sometimes I kick the crutches out from under you and allow you to experience pain so that you learn to trust in me alone. And you don't trust in any of these other crutches. But of course, that raises this question, at least in my mind. Why does Jesus want us to trust him alone? Why only him? Why is he so committed to us having this exclusive trust of him? And here's, here's the reason, I think. It's because he alone will never fail us. All other crutches are illusions. They, they promise to support us. They promise to hold us up. But they really can't. So, so think of it like this. Let's say you're up on the third, you know, the roof of a, of a three-story house. 
and for whatever reason, you can't get back down. You know, maybe somebody stole your ladder. I don't know. You're trapped up on this, the roof of a three-story house, and down there on the ground is your man, Justin Bieber. And, you know, little Justin Bieber, 75 pounds, wet, scrawny Justin Bieber. And he's looking up at you with his cute little face, saying, jump, jump, I will catch you. I promise, I will catch you. Now, there is no way in the world that little Bieber is going to be able to catch you, regardless of how much you weigh. It does not matter. If you, if you jump, there's no way he is going to catch you. But here's what, is, here's what is shocking, is that we jump all the time. We jump into the arms of, of saviors promising to hold us, and they just can't. And we do this all the time. We do this when we look at our boyfriend or our girlfriend and say, look, you are going to be the one that is going to uphold me and support me. I'm going to find all my happiness from you. And we throw ourselves at that. Or we throw ourselves at our family and say, this is the context that's going to support me and uphold me no matter what. Or we do it with money. Or we do it with uh, our, our resumes. A million different options. And they will not support us. They will always fail us. They will, they will always buckle under the weight of our hopes and our dreams and our longings. They're, they're just not, they just can't support the weight of what we put on these things. You know, one of God's attributes is his glory. You know what the word glory means in Hebrew? It means weightiness. It means heaviness. This is why C.S. Lewis, he has that book kind of, of uh, all of these different lectures kind of bundled together. And the title of it is The Weight of Glory. It's referring to the fact that God is substantive. He alone is weighty enough to hold and to support what we throw at him. He alone has the the weight and the heaviness to hold us. And so sometimes in God's kindness, what he does to us is he removes the things that we are leaning on and he lets us experience the pain of jumping off of the roof and falling and, and having bones broken and feeling the pain so that we learn and we learn to trust. I can't jump on those things anymore. They will not support my weight. They will not hold me up. I can only jump on this. He will support me. For some of you, I know that you are depressed right now. And you have this question that you just cannot get out of your head, which is, Man, God has the power to relieve me of this, so why doesn't he? And maybe this is just a season in your life where you are having to wait, and God is bringing you to a point of despair, so that you really will learn to cling to him alone, and you won't cling to any of these other false crutches anymore. Others of you have been praying for something, for the same thing over and over and over and over, and God is not seeming to answer it. And this passage is looking at you and saying, will you still trust him in light of the fact that he may not be answering the prayer that you want answered in the way that you want answered? Will you still trust him? That is his purpose, at least from this passage. It's not an exhaustive purpose, but we know that it is not because he doesn't love us, but rather that the reason is sometimes he introduces pain into our lives so that we will trust him alone. And so that we would have the assurance that he really is for us, that he really does love us. But of course, that raises a question. How can we know that he really is for us? 
If he's kicking out these crutches from under us all the time and allowing us to fall on our face, how do we know he's not just this malevolent, you know, vicious, mean God in the sky just making us feel pain? Well, you will know that he is for you when you look at his posture towards your pain. So that's the second thing I want to look at, his posture towards your pain. And there's two uh, characteristics I want to highlight here. Here's the, here's the first one. Here's this first characteristic about his posture is that Jesus cries. I mean, he walks into this scene of death and of weeping and wailing. And what does he do in verse 35? I mean, he doesn't slap on some spiritual cliche. You know, he's not like, hey, guys, it's going to get better. Uh, He he doesn't even, uh, you know, start quoting Bible verses to them. You know, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. I mean, he doesn't go there. He bursts into tears. And here's the thing that's really shocking about that is because you know, he knows that in like five minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he could like walk into the scene and everybody's crying, everybody's upset. And he'd be like, y'all listen, just wait, give it five minutes. I got something on my sleeve. You're not going to believe this. (laughs) No, he doesn't do this. He bursts into tears. That is his posture towards our pain. And look at people's reaction. When they see him crying in, in verse 36, it says, man, look at the way that he loved him. He really loved Lazarus for this, this type of response. And here's what you have to see. His reaction to pain is right. I mean, it's, the Bible says that Jesus is without sin, which means in this circumstance, his, re, his response to this situation is right and righteous and appropriate. To weep and to cry at, at, at pain and at suffering and at death. This may seem like a really silly question at first, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this the way that you respond to pain? Is this the way that you respond to pain? Because as, as I've gotten to know you, and as I get to know myself, I realize this is not a silly question, because we like to avoid grief at all costs. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We just want to stuff it away, and maybe if I don't look at it, if I don't talk about it, I don't think about it, it will go away. But you have to realize when we do this, we either become hard and inhuman or it will just erupt later on in our life, right? I mean, you have to see that there is nothing wrong with weeping over your pain. It is not a sign of immaturity. It is not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Jesus is right here weeping over pain. I mean, I've heard somebody say that um, Christians should be the most saddest people in the world and that they are the the saddest people in the world. I mean, we're simultaneously the happiest people in the world, but his point was we should be most in touch with reality and it should grieve us the most. It it should grieve us the amount of pain that people experience and the amount of brokenness that is in the world and that we experience. We should be the most in touch. But the fact is, is that we really are like master escape artists where we just escape and avoid pain at all costs. And what we typically do is that we just retreat to video games or the television. We just sort of avoid pain by exercising, by cleaning, by busying ourselves with our schoolwork. You know, other options are just, you know, alcohol, sex, drugs. But really, probably the thing that we do the most is that we just turn off our head and we turn off our hearts by mindlessly clicking away on Facebook and the internet. I can just get in front of the computer for three hours and zone out. I don't have to deal with it. That's not how Jesus reacts. He actually lets the pain kind of, he feels the weight of it and he 
cries. He is he's sitting there weeping. He is not an escape artist from his pain, but we are. We even do this in the way that we counsel our friends that are crying. You know, we have somebody that's you know hurting, and we want to be friends to you know we want to be a good friend to them. We want to counsel them. We want to get them out of pain as soon as possible. And so we do. We kind of throw cliches at them, like "Don't worry, it'll get better," or you know, we we throw Bible verses at them, which is good and great. And I understand all those are good intentions, but maybe what we really need to do is just sit with them and cry with them. And say nothing other than, I am so sorry. This really sucks. And I hate it for you. I mean, that's what Jesus does. He enters into their brokenness and their pain, and he is there weeping with them. It is not a sign of immaturity. But the question is this. Are you convinced that God is, has that sort of sensitivity to your pain? That he actually does weep when you weep? that he is that tender and that he is that sensitive, that he has really tied his heart so deeply to yours that when you feel pain, so does he. There's this great psalm I quote all the time to you guys uh, when I meet with y'all over coffee. It's Psalm 34, 18. It says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He is close to the brokenhearted. You know, we have a little um, four-and-a-half-month-old Zoe Kate. Um, she's the cutest human in the world. And um, when she was two months old, we, we you know, took her to the doctor to get these immunization shots. And one of the um, effects of these shots was that she, she got a mild fever afterward. And when a two-month-old has a fever, um, you know that she is just not doing well. And she was uh, not sleeping. You know, she was hot. And she would have that little like pouty lip thing stick out and she would just cry. She wouldn't be able to sleep. And my wife, Catherine, would stand over her little crib and, and rock it so that you know, Zoe Kate could um, get some sleep. And Catherine would stand there and she would just cry. And she would look at her little daughter crying. She had tied her heart so, she had knit it so you know, close to Zoe Kate's that when she cried, my wife cried. If that is how a human parent responds to when their children are in pain, how do you think your heavenly father responds when you are in pain? Are you that convinced that God is grieved over the sexual abuse in your background? That you could go to him and experience his tears as well as yours? Are you convinced that you could come to God and that that you would know that he would be deeply upset and he would weep over your depression and over your loneliness? and over your broken family. This is it. He is this tender. He is this sensitive. And this is how you can know that he loves you. He weeps with you. That's the first characteristic that you have to see of Jesus' posture towards our pain, is that he weeps. Here's Here's the second characteristic. He is angry. Look at, verse, look at verse 38. Uh, verse 38 says this, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. That word deeply moved is really just a bad translation of what the original word is. And I think translators don't know what to do with the, the word as it is in the original Greek because it's so shocking in some sense. The word there that we translate deeply moved really means intense indignation. White hot rage. It's, it's used uh, other times uh, only to refer to um, horses when they snort 
when they get really aggravated and, and agitated. And so here's the scene. Jesus comes up to the tomb and he looks in and he looks death in the face and he kind of lets out this guttural, inarticulate noise of rage. He is angry. What is he mad at? He is mad at death and at pain and at suffering and all of these effects of sin. Because God made this world good. If you go all the way back to the beginning, God made this world good harmonious and complete and flourishing with peace. But that is not the world that we woke up in this morning, is it? Now, something else has broken into God's good creation. There is a a poisonous parasite that broke in, and that thing is called sin. And now, because of sin, we experience pain and death and suffering and heartache and all of these things that happen. And Jesus looks at all of that stuff, and he is angry at it. It is the loving reaction to, to want to take on um, with anger that which threatens to harm the very thing that you love. I mean, so think about it like this. And, you know, if I brought little Zoe Kate in here and you said, hey, you know what would be really cool if we uh, like tried to feed her shards of glass, like broken shards of glass? My, my response would not be, yeah, let's see what she does. <laughs> you know, like... No, you are threatening to harm that which I love. And so you would experience my anger. I would be angry at you. You would feel the wrath of Papa Bear in that moment. (laughs) Because that's what anger is. It is something is threatening that which I love, and it is not okay. And that is Jesus' response here. He sees the effects of sin, and he says, this is not okay. When he sees the way that sin tries to harm you, and continue to harm you, he is angry. And so that is Jesus' posture towards our pain, is he weeps with us, and he is angry about it. But of course, you know, here's what, here's what you have to see. If all you have is a God that weeps with you uh, and gets angry about your sin, gets angry about pain and suffering, and doesn't do anything about it, I mean, that's great that he's compassionate, but he is worthless, You have a worthless God. If God is just safe and distant and remote and he's kind of just looking in on a messy world like he's watching a bad soap opera, but he doesn't do anything about it, he is worthless. But that's not the Christian God and that is not Jesus. Because this last thing that you have to see, this this last thing is that Jesus plunges himself into our pain and into our suffering. He doesn't just have a purpose for it, and he doesn't have a posture for it either. He actually inserts into it. So look at this. Verse um, 38 through 44. Here's kind of what happens. I'll just summarize it. Jesus comes up to the tomb where Lazarus is, uh, is dead, and he's been inside for four days, and he says, take the stone away. And um, uh, Martha is like, Jesus uh, you can't be serious because he's been in there a while and it's nasty and it's going to reek and it's going to be bad. So let's not. And um, let's not and say we did. And so Jesus says, you know, he insists. And so they roll back the tomb and Jesus kind of steps up into the mouth of the cave where a dude has been dead for four days and says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus obeys. And he comes out alive. Death gives way to life and to resurrection. And here's what you have to see. Jesus does something about this. He reverses the whole thing. He reverses death and it gives way to life. But there's a darker thread going on underneath this story. Because uh, some people see this 
and they report it back to the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees are like, okay, if you look at verse 53, it says, now we have to kill him. Because once they saw Jesus has this type of power, he has this type of influence, people are going to start following him instead of us, and this is a problem. We've got to get rid of him. Jesus knew this would happen. He knew that this would be their reaction. And so, the moment that he called you know, Lazarus out of the grave, he knew that it was only a matter of time before he himself was going to be in his own grave. You know, it's, it's hard for me to not quote every single week from this pastor that I love named Tim Keller, who's up in New York City. But I just appreciate him too much. And here's what he says about this. It's, I just think it's, it's right on. He says, Jesus knew that the only way for Lazarus to come out of the tomb was for Jesus to go in. And he's right. There is this chain reaction that as soon as Jesus calls Lazarus out, it's like, okay, we're beelining it to the cross. Why? Why is Jesus going to the cross? It is because God himself is so willing to enter into our pain and suffering in order to heal it. He, he sort of embodies and jumps into our pain so that one day he can heal it completely and ultimately. There is this thing called sin that must be dealt with and it is causing all of these nasty byproducts. And so on the cross, he is bearing the punishment for sin and ultimately undoing the power of it and the brokenness that it kind of flows from everything. And with his resurrection, three days later, he reverses the whole cycle. And here's what you have to see. Death for Jesus gave way to ultimate resurrection, meaning pain and death do not get the final word in this world anymore. He does. And so when you see Jesus resurrected, that is a preview. That, that, that is a foretaste of what you yourself will experience when you embrace him by faith. It, it, it is, it is a, like a movie trailer of what is to come, meaning that pain and death and suffering and everything that we experience is no longer ultimate. It is temporary. It is final. Jesus has dealt with it. And that day will come. We don't know when it is, but it is booked on, on God's calendar. It is secure because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And one day he will come and undo all of this completely. He has done something about it. But let me wrap up here because we need to. But there is this woman named Anne Steele who uh, lived from 1716 to 1778. I just want to tell you about her real quick. When she was born, um, her, her father was a timber merchant, and her mother died when she was three years old. So she grew up without a mama. And when she got to be um, 19, she severely injured her hip, and uh, it rendered her unable to walk for the rest of her life. But two years later, she's 21 years old, um, she meets the man of her dreams, and they get engaged, and they're planning their wedding, and uh, in the middle of all of the, the planning and the preparation, the day before their wedding, uh, he's drowned in a, in a river while bathing, and, he's ne- and she never married again, and she you know, lived the rest of her life, and she spent, because of, I guess, her her um, injury to her hip, she spent the last nine years of her life unable to leave her bed. Nine years in bed. Anne Steele was a woman that knew 
pain and suffering deeply. But she also knew Jesus. And she was a poet. And she actually wrote this song that we're about to sing. And I've included it on the back of your um, handout. And what I want to do as we close out here is I just want to read this so that you see what a Christian response to pain is. Because what's fascinating, what I want you to see about this song that she wrote is I don't think Christians today feel as comfortable being as raw and as honest with their pain and suffering as, as she did. And so we really have a lot to learn from her because what we think is we say, you know, if I'm suffering or if I have doubts or, you know, if, if such and such is happening, then I must not be a Christian or at least I must not be a good Christian. But, but what this song does for us is that, at least I want you to see from it, how simultaneously honest she is and hopeful she is at the same time. She, she is honest, unbelievably honest about her pain and her failings and her doubts And yet she is unbelievably uh, hopeful about who Jesus is in the midst of it. And this is a worship song. This is a song intended to be sung out of worship. If if, if, If we come in here and say, you just have to put on a happy face in order to worship God, then we are lying to you about what the normal Christian life feels like. I'm going to read this, but I invite you, for all of those in this room who have weary souls, to enter into this song and to lean on uh, our refuge. So let me read it. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. My hope is fainting, and yet I'm relying on you. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail and I fear to call thee mine, the springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust and still my soul would cleave to thee though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? Shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No. Still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat and with humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Let's pray together. Father, this hymn articulates our hearts um, so well. I mean, we are weary. Our hope is fainting. We feel prostrate in the dust, but where else can we flee? I mean, where can we go? You are our only trust, and uh, you are our refuge and our rock and our redeemer. Give us faith in your promises and give us grace as we wait beneath your feet. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.